This is The Point, professional investing in Australia with Pendle. Welcome to The Point podcast from Pendle. It's been about as hectic a month in financial markets as any time since the very beginning of COVID. The energy crisis, thanks to OPEC, looks to be escalating. Inflation remains rampant in some economies. Central banks are lifting rates quickly, although some, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, have just slowed that pace a touch. And we head into the 20th National People's Congress in China next week with President Xi Jinping set for a third term. Making sense of it all for an investor isn't easy. Today, I welcome back Amy Shear-Patrick, Head of Income Strategies at Pendle Group, to talk through some of these issues. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Sean. Let's start with the energy crisis and kind of what that means for investors, particularly bond investors. What we've seen this year so far is that you kind of couldn't hide anywhere in financial markets because bonds haven't offset equities as is usually the play. Now we have this situation where the energy crisis seems to be escalating. What does that mean for bonds? Yeah, this is a really interesting juncture, isn't it, Sean? I mean, you've seen from the UK last week, you know, some of the energy crisis is really heating up to a point where governments feel like they have to do something one way or another. And for quite a right-leaning government, it's quite unusual for them to unleash such a massive fiscal stimulus package to try and support the people through this energy crisis. But of course, as we know, Economics 101 tells us that when you give fiscal stimulus into an already overheated inflation situation, it certainly does not make the inflation situation any better. And on top of that, the fiscal stimulus needs to be funded. So the UK government now needs to issue more gilts into a market that, quite frankly, like any other bond market in the world, investors don't really want them or or don't want them enough yet. And so you had the makings of a gilt crash, quite frankly, last week, and that rippled through all of the world's major bond markets. And the implications are quite clear for bond markets globally, which is that if this energy crisis continues to be met with this kind of policy effort, then it's really not good news for for bonds overall, as the demand and supply picture skews heavily towards still supply. But when I think about it in the medium term, I think more about what the energy crisis can mean for company earnings in the energy sector, because more recently you've now seen OPEC, as opposed to when we had oil prices way above $100, now you're seeing OPEC trying to reduce supply drastically to try and support that oil price. And what it tells you is that in major commodity markets, those markets are already pricing in much softer demand, perhaps even recession. If that were to be the case and OPEC were unsuccessful in holding up the oil price, then that could mean meaningful downside in energy and resources companies' earnings that have yet to be priced in to equity prices, both in the US and globally. And usually what that means is that there could be a lot more equities downside, which is usually met by bullish action. bonds. Mm. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword at the moment. You know, right now, very bearish in terms of the fiscal response to the energy crisis. But in the medium term, with commodity prices coming off, it could actually be a more bullish picture for bonds. How do interest rates fit into this scenario? We've seen most central banks lift interest rates pretty aggressively. There have been a few. I mentioned the Reserve Bank, which seems to have taken its foot off the accelerator. It's still lifting rates, just not as hard as it had been. The Fed, certainly all the talk out of the members of the Fed are that rates are still going a lot higher. How does that fit into that scenario you're talking about? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think central banks and what they're doing right now probably has less to do with what's going on in the energy markets and with oil prices than what's going on in labor markets and wages. So you're absolutely right. Very different tone coming out of the Fed and the RBA of late, with the RBA having hiked last week by, I say, only 25 basis points versus what the market had expected to be a 50, whilst the Fed, on the other hand, are very adamant on continuing to keep on this 75 basis point hiking pace until they get some better readings on inflation, and in particular about the labor market. Now, I think that the RBA may be right to take a bit of a breather to slow down their pace of hiking, because after all, when you hike at such a breakneck pace, you probably it's prudent to look around and see what the economic impacts are, and they usually feed through with a bit of a lag before pressing on. The problem with Australia, I think, is that actually we, we don't really seem to be that different. You know, we talk about how our mortgage markets are a little bit different because we're priced off floating rates as opposed to the US, which is priced off of very long-term fixed rates. We talk about our indebtedness in our economy with household debt to GDP at about, you know, 200% as opposed to the US, which is around half of that. But ultimately, everything that you're seeing with the global inflation picture, labor market picture, offshore, both, you know, in the US, but in other economies as well, it all seems to be happening over here just a little bit later. So maybe the magnitude of the inflation problem is not as great in Australia, but ultimately the direction of travel for our central bank may not be that different from the Fed. And then the last point that I want to make is ultimately, you know, the the RBA isn't worried about the currency yet. But when we look across to our neighbors in New Zealand, you know, one of the reasons that the RBNZ has been so adamant on hiking and hiking just as aggressively alongside the Fed is that it needs to make sure the currency doesn't go into some kind of a downward spiral. At some point for the RBA, that also has to feed into its calculations in terms of the medium term effects that that can have on inflation as well in Australia. I just want to bring that back then. What's it mean for bonds? So it's not a particularly bright short-term outlook for bonds in this aspect either. That's an interesting point you raised, Sean, because I think it's a common misperception that you shouldn't buy bonds in a hiking cycle. In a lot of hiking cycles, bonds actually do okay on a total return basis. And when I say total return, I mean the income that you get from the coupon on those bonds, as well as their potential to gain a little bit in in terms of the capital price. And that usually is because most hiking cycles are fairly well flagged, especially in modern economic history. The difference with this hiking cycle is, you know, and we've covered it before, the the central banks just simply left it too, too late and now have to do a lot of catch up. But just because central banks may need to keep on hiking, now that that mantra, that rhetoric is very well flagged to the market, there is actually hope that bonds do better in the second half of this hiking cycle. But it does mean that you probably want to look at having bonds in your portfolio as that defensive pillar more towards the longer end of curves, because at the shorter end, that's directly tied to where policy rates are going. And as we know, nobody has signaled that they're ready to to peak and pivot more dovishly just yet. Okay. And just a quick one before you go, Amy, we're going to hear a lot about China over the next week or so. We have the National People's Congress kicking off on the 16th. It's the 20th National People's Congress. Xi Jinping is very, very likely to be elected or nominated as the president for a third five-year term. 
what's that mean for economies and particularly the Australian economy? Great question. Look, I think there's a lot of hopes coming out of China's MPC that there'll be some massive economic turnaround, huge stimulus, the economic story, and both the COVID story will get turned around as well. I think a lot of those hopes will be dashed this time around. But what I am looking for is gradual easing of the zero COVID tolerance policy. And ultimately what that means for Australia is that we might get students back Chinese students back into Australian universities and those students who are willing to work, we might get some easing in the labour force situation with regards to certain service sectors as well. But I think, again, be careful to place too much hope on this immigration story because what we're hearing domestically is that Chinese students, having gone for these last three years with a lot of online learning, have realised that actually they don't need to go offshore to pursue you know, th- this type of education. And tourists' views about where they want to visit may have changed as well. So there is some glimmer of hope for Australia, but you know, don't bet your house on it. Amy, thank you for talking to The Point. Thanks, Sean. That was Amy Sherpatrick, Head of Income Strategies at Pendle. You've been listening to The Point podcast from Pendle. I'm Sean Aylmer. Have a great day.